Well, we're continuing our series called Worship Living in Awe of God, and the third week of this, we're talking about how worship proclaims the forgiveness of God. Uh, and you know, I was thinking about this, every symbol, I'm, I'm a former mass communication student in college, I remember that every symbol conveys a message. Uh, just simply by seeing an icon or a logo, it evokes uh, emotions. It, it really proclaims something, right? Um, you instantly recognize what it is. So like, I've got some corporate logos here, so like good little capitalists, let's, uh, I'm gonna do a little quiz here. All right, so when you think of this logo, what, what does it make you feel? Kind of like you just ate a shoebox? Is that what it makes you feel like? Don't get me wrong, no, I love McDonald's. No shame. I love those cheeseburgers, I do. All right, this next one. We know this. When I think of that, I think of waiting in line. I do. It's good. Okay, the next one. Made in the Carolinas, allegedly, right? That's cool. I think it is, That's uh, apparently. Uh, next one, okay. I'm a big Apple guy, overpriced, but still quality, quality stuff. Yeah, it's, it's, here we go. Isn't that crazy? Just that one image, you immediately can tell. And then the last one, Grogu. <laughs> Just thought I'd throw Grogu in there. That's, that's for me and Corey especially. Corey, get your Grogu. Okay. Um, now here's another image that you all are familiar with and that when you see it, it conveys something. It proclaims something. Maybe, I know I've never been there, but I've certainly seen this iconic image uh, throughout my life. It's called Christ the Redeemer statue and look, overlooking Rio de Janeiro. Just an iconic image. It's been voted uh, easily one of the seven new wonders of the world. Um, and it was built in 1922, uh, but it really came about 1890. The Catholics of Rio came together and said, we need to do something to combat the godlessness they perceived in the city of Rio. So the Catholic community got together $3 million, and starting in 1922 to 1931, they built this uh, glorious Art Deco representation of Jesus with a heart on his, right in the middle of his chest. It weighs 700 tons, it's 125 feet tall, and amazingly, the men who built it did not wear any harnesses, and none of them died, which they perceived that as a miracle over that time period. Um, and so they would say that the idea of this statue was to proclaim the forgiveness of God to Brazil and to Rio, but it really has done so, uh, conveyed a message around the world, hasn't it? That this conveys this open embrace of the Savior while it's also the shape of a cross. And it's conveying to the world, proclaiming to the world for almost 100 years that God forgives you. And when the church gathers in worship day after day, week after week, month after month, we are proclaiming that same message through worship, through gathering, through proclamation. We're proclaiming that God is ready to love and forgive you of your sin. Now, I've grown up in the church. Um, Otis and Carol made sure of that, uh, and I'm so thankful. Um, and so I've been a part of the a variety of churches uh, and I love the church. The church of course, you'd hope a pastor would say that, but I do. And uh, the church is Jesus' idea, isn't it? He instituted it. He started it. He developed it. He set it into motion. And now we're, we get to reap from that. We get to gather and experience the forgiveness of God each and every week. 
I've attended uh, Methodist churches in South Georgia. I've attended Baptist churches in Eastern North Carolina. I have worked in churches like that. I've worked in non-denominational megachurches. I've worked in evangelical Presbyterian churches. I've had Pentecostal experiences that were legit and awesome, and I'm fully on board with much of that. But what all of those have in common is this. All Methodist churches smell the same. (laughs) Think about it. And all Baptist churches smell the same too. I don't know why, but they do. No. What they have in common is that they have different doctrine, they have different language about talking about things, they have different structure and all of that, but they should be proclaiming two basic things that Jesus told the, the apostles to proclaim. And that is that potluck suppers are awesome. No, no, not that. But to proclaim that Jesus is Lord, right? That he is Lord, he is king, he is God. And then secondly, that there's forgiveness of sin for all that trust in his name. That is the main message of the church throughout millennia. Even Jesus in Luke chapter 24, after the resurrection, Jesus gives the apostles this task. It's written that this message must be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all the nations, beginning in Jerusalem. There is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. That's from the mouth of Jesus to the apostles to proclaim that message. There is forgiveness of sin for all who repent. So the church has been tasked with proclaiming this message. And God also pursues us with that same heart, that same tenacity, that same proclamation. But many times God speaks in a way that's very quiet. It's, he doesn't shout. And so that it leads people to wonder, is, is God even real? Because I'm not hearing him all the time. But that's not how, you have to learn how God communicates. It's, not, it's just not how he works much of the time. Of course he can if he wants to. But typically it's through a whisper. It's through a, an impression as you're reading the Bible. It's through the work of the Holy Spirit. And he speaks in a very quiet way. And in a very persistent way. I mean, I'll explain it this way. For those of us with children, or your grandchildren, especially when they're little, like toddler age, and you're trying to get them to like do something, and you're like, come here, and th- their eyes are like all over the place. It's like, just like squirrel, you know, they're everywhere. You're like, no, come here, do you see me? Like, I need to put blinders on you like a horse, so you like, you see me. Come here, like come here and stand here. And they're like, what, what, you know? So I learned a trick. If I get down, maybe I've heard this, you've heard me use this before. I get down on their level, and uh, I speak very softly, and I say, come here, I want to tell you a secret, right? Now, this doesn't work with teenagers. It's really creepy with teenagers. <laughs> so don't do it with them. They'll, if not, they will, opposite, opposite reaction. But they'll say, I want to tell you a secret. And, and, and the, the kids' eyes light up. My, they always do, because, yo, I want to hear a secret. Oh, I want to be a part of the secret. So they come forward, and I whisper in their ear what I wanted to tell them, right? And, and they receive the message. God is the same way with us. God is very patient with us. He's very kind to us. God may speak in a whisper. God does not shout at you. He's not come to condemn you. He's not come to accuse you. He, God, think of it this way. God does not demand his own way. God is patient. God is kind. God keeps no record of your wrongs. God is not proud. God will always trust. God will always persevere. God hopes all things. God forgives all things that you've done. God's pursuit of you is persistent because he does what you would expect true love to do. 
to never give up, right? To pursue, to lay it all down on your behalf. And today God whispers to you and to me through the proclamation of the church, come closer, come closer. I have something I wanna say to you, but maybe you need to be still enough so that you can hear it. Maybe you need to be quipping so distracted by everything else and slow down so that you can hear what I'm trying to say to you. I'm, I'm scanning the horizon. I'm waiting to see you cross that line. God has been waiting. Come closer, he says. And you see Jesus touch on this in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. He says, look, I stand at the door and I knock. It's not a literal door. He's talking about the door of our hearts. I stand at the door and I knock. And if you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to you and eat with you and you with me. See, the voice of God pursues us. You see this throughout Scripture. This, of course, you know, in the Old Testament, God has this frustration with his people because they continue to rebel. They continue to be disobedient. They continue to shut themselves off from the voice of the loving forgiveness of God. And you see it even in like Proverbs, the very beginning of Proverbs, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 20. Wisdom cries out on the street. In the square, she raises her voice. At the busiest corner, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? Give heed to my reproof. And look, this is profound. I will pour out my thoughts to you. I will make my words known to you. See, just as God pursues us with his love and forgiveness, the church proclaims that same forgiveness to the world. But the secular response to that message is one that we're all familiar with. And that it's to, hear, to hear the church say to people, God forgives you, God loves you, God forgives you of your sin. The secular response is almost a cliche at this point, which is this. I'm a good person, therefore I don't need religion, right? I don't need God to forgive me of my sin. I'll be a good person and that will get me to heaven. Yes? That's what we hear? But is that true? That's a critical error on the spiritual world and issues of eternity. Is that true? Think of it this way. Imagine there's a, 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 an old widow who has a, an only son. And her son, she teaches how to be, uh, um, have virtue, to be good, to be charitable, to serve their community. Now, she doesn't have a lot of money, but she scrapes together her meager savings, and she puts her son through college. Now, imagine that once he gets out of college, uh, he never speaks to her ever again. He doesn't send her a Christmas card. He, doesn't, he ghosts her on her text messages. He doesn't call her back. He doesn't acknowledge that he ever had a relationship with his mother. Imagine that to happen, but... He lives just as his mother taught him, to be charitable, to be virtuous, to be a good person. Would you say that was acceptable? Would we say that by living a good life, but, by, but neglecting the relationship with the one to whom you owe everything, that you have done something commendable? Would you say that was acceptable? No. In the same way, God has made everyone and we owe him everything. But if you don't live for him and just try and live a good life, it's not enough. 
It neglects the one who taught you what even good means to begin with. See, we owe a debt of sin that we can't repay. This is the essence of the gospel, y'all. That's why it's called good news. We can't repay our own debt by our own merit. You and I, we can't atone for our own sin, our moral sin, our ethical sin. Spiritually, you cannot forgive, you, you cannot forgive your own sin. You can't atone for your sin. Now, you can uh, make amends with your past, right? You can have closure. That's good. But you cannot atone for it. Only Jesus can forgive sin. And so this is where grace comes in, right? This is where forgiveness comes in. We need grace when our guilt is exposed. So whether we're religious or not, or we even know it or not, all people owe a debt of sin that we can't repay. So God knew the conundrum. So what does God do? He sends his son, Jesus, to die as a sacrifice on our behalf so that we would live again and we would have our sin atoned for. Uh, much of the book of Romans touches on this idea. A lot of Paul, Paul would write about this a lot. Romans 5, verses 8 through, uh, 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this is the astounding thing about the love of God is that it pursues us even though the world is disobedient and spiritually deaf and dumb. He still goes after us. Even though people are looking for water in empty wells, even though we're looking for love in all the wrong places like that old country song, he doesn't doesn't quit. He still proclaims his forgiveness to us, even though it's a world that looks for answers everywhere but God, he doesn't give up. And this is a world, by our actions, we're showing how desperately we need God's forgiveness. Hear these words of Psalm 103. And know that these things, these words just cut through time, timeless. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always accuse, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sin, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, it's a long way, everybody. So far he removes our transgressions or our sins from us, removes As a father has compassion for his children, come closer, God says. Come closer, I have something to tell you. But I'm not gonna shout it at you. So the Lord has compassion for those who fear him. For he knows how we were made. He remembers that we are dust. Every worship service you and I have ever attended and will ever attend, it's an opportunity. It's an invitation. It's, it's, It's an opportunity, it's an entry point to know the truth and for the truth to set you free. And what is that truth? Jesus is Lord, only he can forgive sin. And there's salvation in his name. This culture, as we know, is hurtling toward a precipice. Unfortunately, I see more cases of anxiety, depression, and attempted suicide spiking, particularly among young people, now more than ever. 
And people need to know that God loves them. Come on, give me an amen. People need to know that God forgives them. That you are not where you are. You are not where you were. You are not uh, your circumstance. You're not the mistakes that you made. And you're not even the pain that someone else inflicted upon you. God is crying out in the streets, ready to pardon. And that many times we're flagellating ourselves for things that have occurred in the past that are in the past and we can't control them anymore. And when Jesus' work on the cross was accomplished, it was for all time. That's why I love putting a cross up in here because it's a great reminder that it's not a symbol of death, it's not a symbol of judgment, it's a symbol of love. It's a symbol that used to represent torture and that God would flip it to make it a symbol of hope. You know, even uh, iconic imagery like a cross. I mean, did you know that, of course, for hundreds of years in Europe, uh, churches weren't allowed, I mean, buildings weren't allowed to be taller than the steeple, right? The cross had to be preeminent above every other physical structure so that when you look up, you would see the cross, literally proclaiming the love and the forgiveness of God to the world. Even in this beautiful church, we have our beautiful steeple here uh, with the cross above all. So we think about iconic imagery like that or Christ the Redeemer statue or uh, even think of this, uh, the Sistine Chapel, uh, which I've never experienced. My wife has been there. She said it's great, but she said it's a lot smaller than you think it is. It's very cramped, she said in there. Uh, But we know Michelangelo famously painted the Sistine Chapel he finished it in 1512. It took him four years to paint that fresco. And for the next 400 years, the only way you could experience the beauty of it above you was through candlelight, right? So as time goes on and people are walking with candles, well, soot, grime would rise. And then in the modern age, art historians would look at the work and go, Michelangelo was a genius at composition, but his coloration is pretty crappy. Looking pretty muted, Michelangelo. Pretty monochromatic, right? But then in 1984, they began a 15-year restoration of the Sistine Chapel. And over time, they began to see these spring-like colors reemerge. Pale pink, apple green, vivid yellow, a sky blue against a background of pearly gray and then the maker's true brilliance and goodness were revealed and then people had to change their assumptions about Michelangelo they realized that the maker of this thing was far greater than we imagined in a similar way many people look at the forgiveness the love of God and they see it as monochromatic blah and cliche not that exceptional the grime and the soot of our lives, of sin, they've obscured what we should see as the truth. They've obscured that God is a good father and that his forgiveness is for you and for me. It's not for other people. So we know that worship proclaims the goodness, the forgiveness of God. But with all this soot and grime and sin and chaos of our world, how in the world can anybody receive it? How in the world are we able to know it? This is, again, where grace comes in. Grace comes in. God's grace restores us to see the beauty that he has made, the beauty of his grace, the beauty of his forgiveness, the beauty of his love that he has 
poured out for you and for me. And here's the really great thing about God's grace. It, and he enables us to have faith. I'll say that again. God's grace enables you and I to have faith. We are so lost in sin, we cannot have faith apart from his grace. God loves us too much to leave us where we are, so God's grace helps us have a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And that once you have a saving faith in Jesus, you need to hear this, his sa- the saving faith in Christ saves you from the, the, the power of past sin, right? So all of the things that we carry with us from our past, this work that Christ has done on the cross for you and for me, he has, he has atoned for it, whatever it is, whatever you're thinking about right now, he's atoned for it. A saving faith in Christ also cancels the present power of sin. So that if, if I leave this place today and I get hit by a bus, that's, what, that's Jeff's favorite analogy. If I leave this place and I get hit by a bus, I'm not going to die in my sin because of what he has done on my behalf, that I've received that gift by faith, right? Thirdly, saving faith in Christ, it saves you from fear of future punishment. You're absolved of fear of judgment or punishment in the future. When Christ looks at you, he will see his son and the Holy Spirit residing within you, and he won't see your sin. This is what we call justification. The work of Jesus on the cross means that you are justified or made right in the sight of God because of what he has done. It's the work of the Son of God on your behalf and on my behalf. And once we step into that place of justification, yes, I believe, O Lord, you have justified me in the sight of God because of your work on my behalf. This thing called sanctification starts, which is growing in holiness. And now this is a work of the Holy Spirit on your behalf to help you grow into Christ-likeness for the rest of your days. But John Wesley would say this, and he's right, what is essential is that you are consciously aware of sin's pardon in your life. To be aware of that, do you know that in the depth of your being? Like in the deepest part of who you are, are you still clinging to whatever that thing is? Or are you believing and receiving that you are forgiven of it? Now, you might have to deal with the fallout of it, but you are forgiven. In God's grace, God will wipe away the grime, the soot, and the sin that clings to us. I I was reading Oswald Chambers um, this week, and uh, he, he said, whatever's in the past, let it stay in the past. And let it stay in the arms of Jesus. I like, the, wait, I, like thinking, I like the thought. And so then let us look forward to the future with a triumphant hope. I'm going to say a prayer for us. And I, maybe as the Spirit leads, if you have something you need to confess before God, do it. And, and then, my friend, receive what, the forgiveness for you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace in our lives that you do enable us to have saving faith. You do show us the beauty and the wonder of the work of art you've created that is who you are or or that is the work of salvation on our behalf. We thank you, Jesus, that there is, while there is only forgiveness of sin in your name, that gift is available to everyone that will receive it. And that thank you, oh God, that we're not who we are, we're not who we are, were, we're not who other people say we are, but God, we are in this moment a free people 
Help us step into that reality. Again, to, I pray that we live as people that are already in heaven. They're free where, where, where heaven is. You don't want people to walk in bondage and chains anymore, but to live as people who are free. Just as that woman that you saved, that woman that was caught in adultery, and you embraced her and you defended her against her accusers, and you said to her, woman, your sins are forgiven. Now go and sin no more. God, that's your call upon each of us to not continue abusing your grace, but to receive it. And then Holy Spirit, enter into us and make us new creations that live and work and do in such ways that that bring your kingdom into our lives, into our homes, into our marriages, into our jobs. This is the greatest news any of us will ever hear. God, that you forgive sins. Set us free, Holy Spirit. In your name we pray.